you have a Bible, please make your way to Genesis chapter 3 this morning as you're turning there. And just a reminder, this Wednesday, our regular programs kick back up. So last week we were off for McRest. This Wednesday, Oasis Middle School, the kids' ministry, as well as Thrive Adult Bible Study is all getting back going. Also, November 19th, we have a baptism Sunday. So if the Holy Spirit has maybe placed it upon your heart that you're interested in baptism, baptism is simply something that we do as a response to faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you put your faith in Jesus but have not subsequent to that moment placed, uh, been baptized, then maybe that's something for you. And it's so powerful when we get to celebrate those moments as people are demonstrating their faith to all of us together as a church family and sharing what God has done in their lives. So if that's you and you're interested, in the back of your bulletin with that communication card, you can just check the baptism box and we'll connect with you and help you with that. Now last Tuesday, we had a bunch of kids... In our living room, nine to, to be in fact, uh, nine in fact, that were trading candy after Halloween. And so this is what was going on in my living room that evening. Why don't we take a peek? enough to make you dizzy. Just on the other side of that living room table, right after I took that video, as I walked over there, I see a giant stash of empty wrappers. I mean, a huge stash of empty wrappers. And the one sitting in front of that stash was my son and his buddy. Now, I don't know about these other parents. They're actually good friends of mine, but I don't know about these other parents. But my kids, I said, you get two pieces of candy, and that is all after you go trick-or-treating. So you get to pick two tonight. That's it. And so when we go back there and I see this big stash of wrappers, they're all empty, and it wasn't just the small ones. It was like several full-size candy bars. And so what I tend to do in those moments is I try to get and muster up as much intensity in my face as possible without getting in trouble with my wife, still by being discreet, look right at the boys' faces and ask them some questions to try to get after the truth. And so I I asked them, I said, did you eat all this candy? And my son said, no, I didn't do it. I didn't believe him. And then his buddy speaks up and he says, no, no, let me tell you what happened. (laughs) Let me tell you the real story. The real story, apparently, was that as they were going around the neighborhood, there were some other kids in the neighborhood that came up to him and said, hey, would you like a bunch of candy? He said, yes, of course, I'll take more candy. And they threw empty wrappers into his bag when he got to my house and dumped it all out. Those Those wrappers were now all empty. I did not know where the truth was. I did not know whether I was being deceived or they had been deceived. I had no concept where the deception was in this story. And I was after the truth, but I wasn't sure where it was. I think after praying and fasting for many days (laughs) that he was, in fact, telling the truth. But the point is that deception is not straightforward. 
Sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes you don't see it when it's right in front of you. Sometimes you don't understand that what you were just given is nothing more than an empty wrapper. And yet, because deception is not straightforward, we need some help. And that's really our idea today, that deception is not straightforward, so we must run straight to God's truth. Genesis 3 is the downfall of humanity. It is the moment that paradise was lost. That is the title of this sermon series. Innocence lost, security lost, perfection lost. It's the part of our history that reminds us that we have all or exchanged the truth for a lie. Paul, Paul tells us this, in fact. In Romans chapter 5, he writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So just like our first parents... We run away from the wisdom of God, chasing after what we think will be better, only to find out it was all a scam. It was all a trick. What we thought would be better ends up being an empty wrapper that has no sustenance at all. So we've been tricked. You've been tricked. I've been tricked. We've all been deceived, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. So you guys are the crowd that is really awake You've gotten lots of extra sleep, right? Man, you should be louder than the previous two. That's what I'm after right now. More energy than the 8.30 and 10 because it is now 12.30 in the afternoon. Maybe maybe you're hungry. So so we're going to be talking about deception today. So just turn to a neighbor and say, you've been tricked this morning. You've been tricked. You have absolutely been tricked. You have been deceived. That's what we want to talk about today is deception. And today, I hope that you'll recognize where deception has a hold of your life, where it still has a hold of your life, and I hope you'll exchange the lies for the truth. The truth is ultimately what will change us. Jesus put it this way, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth, finish the verse if you know it, will set you free. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free Indeed. There are so many people in this world that think they are free, but they're in bondage. And they think that the very thing that will bring them freedom, spiritual freedom, spiritual redemption, they call that oppression and bondage. It's all mixed up. It's deception at work. So Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will see the truth, and the truth will lead you to real freedom. Now, this is scene two in the garden. Scene one focused on the creation of humanity, the creation of Adam and Eve, all that happened in our origin series in Genesis chapter one and two, where God breathed life into humanity, that loving God and loving one one another, it was as natural to them as breathing, and it was as effortless as breathing. They were naked with one another. Clothing had never occurred to them. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to protect. There was no shame. And everything was perfect until the day where everything went wrong. So what we want to answer today is this question. What must we understand about the nature of deception so that we are better prepared to overcome the trials that would take us away from the truth of the gospel, away from the freedom that Jesus gives us. 
What must we understand about the nature of deception so that we can overcome deception when it comes? Here's the first. Deception twists God's word. We must understand this truth. Look at verse 1. It begins, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the first character who shows up is the serpent. And the serpent doesn't have a name. He's not given a name, but the Bible tells us it was Satan. The Apostle John makes it clear in Revelation chapter 12. He writes in verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And here he's described as being more crafty or the most cunning of any beast of the field. Now, cunning in the original language in Hebrew, it's arum, A-R-U-M. It means shrewd or clever. It's a play on words that Moses is using here because the word sounds very similar to a word that's coming up, and it's the word in Hebrew for nude, which is arom, E-R-O-M. And the point is that Adam and Eve are seeking to be shrewd. They're seeking to gain this shrewdness. They're seeking to gain this wisdom. They're seeking to gain this arum, and yet they'll discover that they're naked and nude, arom. So Satan, a creation of God who wanted to replace God, knows how to attack the words of God. He knows how to introduce doubt and confusion into all of our situations. And that's what he's doing here. So Jesus tells us, actually in John 8, he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now think about this. God's word at this point, was responsible for everything Eve enjoyed. Everything that made existence so perfect and beautiful and fulfilling was because of God's word. The sun, the moon, the sky, the day, the night, the flowers, the animals, the garden itself. God was the creator of her Adam. Everything good came from God's good word. And yet this is the deception, taking what is true and good and holy and suggesting it is not. Did God actually say, did he really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now what's important to see is that when Satan brings up God, you'll see it in the text. Look at, look at your Bibles if you would. You'll see it right here. When he brings up God, he doesn't use God's covenantal name. What's God's covenantal name? It's a very special name, a sacred name. It's Yahweh. And you see it throughout Genesis. You just don't necessarily realize it's there. Yahweh Elohim is translated the Lord God. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. It's always in all caps, the Lord part. And Yahweh is referring to God as a covenantal, relational, loving, promise-keeping God. It's all wrapped up in his name and his identity and in his character. And when Satan introduces God here and talks about God here, he drops the name Yahweh and just refers to him as Elohim. He's already trying to deceive Eve, saying, the God that you're thinking about, he's not really who he says he is. He's not all that you think he is. He's not as loving. He's not that covenant-keeping God that you might assume. He's something else, and I'm going to distance you a little bit in your mind from him 
we're just going to call him Elohim. Deception is not straightforward. It's so subtle. It's so soft. It's clever. It's cunning. It's shrewd. It has the appearance of wisdom. Did you notice how Satan didn't directly deny God's word? Not yet. He'll do that in a moment, but not yet. He just introduced the idea that God's word here to Eve is subject to her own interpretation, her own judgment. Sure, God made statements about the tree, but there's room for your interpretation within what he said. And so we see this all the time. Take the words of Jesus Christ. Did our Lord literally say what we think he said? Did Did he really say we should deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him? Did he really say that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Did he really say we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and that includes our enemies? Did he really say that you must forgive and ask forgiveness? Did he really say that we should remain sexually pure before marriage and in marriage? Did he really say that we shouldn't love money? And even if he said all these things, he didn't mean it the way you might think. Your idea of what it means to pick up your cross and follow him, that's not the same as mine. Yours is extreme. Your idea of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's different than mine. I have a different interpretation. Your idea of neighbor, it's different than mine. Your idea about relationships and how they're supposed to work according to God, it's different than mine. Your idea of what forgiveness is and who deserves it, or your view of possessions, your view of money, they're all different than mine. And the truth is that scholars and pastors right down the street have been arguing about these things for thousands of years, so don't you dare judge me on my interpretations. Why are you so convinced you're the right one? Ever heard this before? The right answer is yes. The tragedy is that yes, some scholars and some people who call themselves pastors are unfortunately doing this all the time. This is how it usually goes. God's words meant this back then, but now because of the way that culture and society has evolved, this is what they mean today, and they are different, and that's okay, and that's what he intended you might have thought he was saying this, but he was really meaning that. And all these are lies saying the same thing, that God's word is open to your interpretation. Can I be as forceful and gracious as I can this morning, friends, and say, no, it is not. It is not. His word cannot mean something today that it did not mean then. His word was given so that it could be understood. Sometimes it takes some work, of course, to understand it, and we have to dive in a bit, understand a few things, but it is not meant to be some mysterious puzzle that needs unlocked with a special Dakota ring. He gave it so we could hear it. He gave it so we could read it, so it could be heard and understood as what? As truth, because truth sets us free. Are you following me? Yeah, okay, good. Just making sure you're not getting the afternoon nap time going. See, the the truth is, it, it isn't meant to make life feel like you're in a prison. It's not meant to be oppressive, and yet that's so often, that's the deception, what people say, that the word of God, the religion of Christianity, all of this is oppression and bondage, when in fact the opposite is true. It's meant to lead us to freedom, 
It was given to bring us freedom. So Eve's response reveals she was buying into the serpent's interpretation of things. The truth was being exchanged here for a lie. Here's what God actually said. Genesis 2, verse 16, and the Lord God, notice the name, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Eve makes a few revisions and additions. Notice what she says. Chapter 3, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God, notice, Elohim, she follows the pattern of the serpent, she leaves out Yahweh, said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now they sound pretty similar. But I need to let you know that pretty similar when it comes to the word of God is the difference between deception and truth. Did you hear me? (laughs) Pretty similar is the difference between deception and truth. Because there's so many people that say things that are pretty similar. And yet it's not at all what God is saying. She makes these revisions. What are they? First, instead of saying that she could eat of every tree of the garden, she just says we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she minimizes God's provision. She minimizes it. He had given them the whole garden except one tree. And instead of focusing on his abundant provision, she makes God's provision seem like a scarcity. So the truth is that God had abundantly provided through his word. The deception is to think you don't have enough. And you don't have what you need. Do you live believing God has given you abundance? Or do you live thinking he's not given you enough? That's deception at work. Second, she adds to God's word. God never said don't touch it, which is what she says. He said don't eat it. So Eve exaggerates God's rules. This this happens all the time in our relationships, so just bear with me. I'll use the stereotype for a moment if you'd allow me. But say a husband's there and he wants to watch the game, and his wife says to him, can you just maybe watch it from halftime forward or something like that, or maybe just turn it off tonight so we could kind of hang out and have family time and blah, blah, those types of things. And so then he goes to his buddies that next week, and he says, you know what? My wife hates when I watch sports. She never lets me do it. She hates the sports teams I have. She, she hates everything about sports. And so basically, I don't understand why God gave me this woman. <laughs> and we do it all the time. We take something someone says and we exaggerate it as though they're saying something that they really didn't say. And so that's what's happening here. God says, don't eat the fruit. You know, God said, don't eat the fruit. Don't touch the fruit. If I trip and fall into the fruit, I'm toast an exaggeration of his rules to make God sound like he's oppressive, to make God sound as though he hasn't given us enough. It's deception at work. Third, she softens God's word. She said, lest you die. God said, you shall surely die. That's an important adverb. She lightens the consequences. So minimizing God's word, exaggerating God's word, and softening God's word are all common ways God's words are twisted today. So we must first understand that deception twists God's word if we want to be prepared to overcome the trials 
that would take us away from the life-giving freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing we must understand. Deception twists God's judgment. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, twisting God's judgment is really under the umbrella of twisting God's word, right? It's kind of a categorization underneath of that broader um, uh, umbrella, we could say. So Satan, Satan, though, makes it so blatant that even though it, it, twisting God's judgment is part of twisting God's words, we just need to spend some extra time on it because it's so obvious in the text. It literally reads, when he responds to her, not, you will surely die. So God says, you will surely die. Satan responds and says, no, no, you will not surely die. You can see the progression. He twists God's words. Eve follows along and begins to doubt it herself. So then he jumps at the opportunity, and now he denies God's word. Let me show you something else. Did you also happen to notice the doctrine that was attacked? What is the doctrine that Satan is attacking in his, in his temptation of Eve here. The doctrine of divine judgment. That's the first doctrine of God to be attacked in the word of God. God's judgment is always the first thing to be attacked. How, how do I know this? It's pretty obvious. Of all the doctrines of God that we talk about today, which one gets the strongest response from people? If we talk about God being love, God being merciful, God being gracious, God being kind, God being long-suffering, God being compassionate, all of these things, people are like, great. But the moment we say, but God is also the judge, and he will judge the world, what happens? Does that usually go awesome from that point on? Like, wow, that's, that's great. Tell me more. That's the moment where all of a sudden you're called a bigot, that you have hatred for others, that you're myopic, that you have no compassion for people, that you're arrogant, that you truly don't understand the world. God's judgment is always the first doctrine to be attacked. Nevertheless, judgment is part of God's revealed truth. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, we should actually be glad for God's judgment because it will free this world from sin. We should be grateful for God's judgment because it will ultimately restore all things to the way they are supposed to be and get rid of deception forever. And yet the difficulty is that we've all been deceived. That we've all been deceived by others and we've deceived others. That we're all part of this story. That we've all done the same thing. We've all fallen for the same trick. We've all reached for the candy bar and realized there's nothing inside. It's empty. And yet we indulged. But there is good news. The gospel is that we have also been so loved completely and desperately by Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, that a way has been made for us to escape the judgment of God by the death of the one who will judge. 
So follow this. This is fascinating to me that, that God gives the authority to the Son to judge the world, and so the judge of the world actually dies so that we won't be judged by the judge. That's the goodness of the gospel, that the judge himself came and actually put his life in our place. He, he took the death we deserved. He took all the, all the consequences of our rebellion, and he bore it all. And he spilled his blood and he broke his body so that all those who might believe will no longer be judged by the judge towards eternal separation from the Father. This is the good news. This is what's called the great exchange, that it's open to all, every tribe, tongue, and language. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been. This can be your great exchange. Your life exchanged with the life of Christ, his resurrection given to you, his righteousness given to you, his beauty and power and all the things that led him to that place of being able to live in perfect obedience to the Father, that obedience was given to you so that you are no longer condemned. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus came to rescue you from all the times you bought into deception. All the times you twisted, ignored, minimized, minimized, exaggerated, softened, disobeyed the word of God. Faith means stepping into this truth. And when you step into this truth through faith, believing it to be true, then it leads to freedom. Real freedom. No longer slaves. Real freedom. I hope if you have not yet that you would make a decision to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Here's the third principle we must understand. Deception twists God's character. Let's look at this for a few minutes. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, Satan says, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan describes God now as self-protective and self-serving. He describes God as an evil being. The evil being describes the righteous God as an evil being. Deception. And he says, you, you thought he loved you, but he doesn't. You thought he was good, but he's really not. He's, he's withholding something good from you because he doesn't want you to have it. You thought he had provided for you, but everything he has done for you is meant to deceive you from seeing the truth that you can eat and be like him. And there it was, the big, fat, disastrous lie that changed the course of history forever. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And the thing about that deception was he was saying, you will be like God, but the truth of the matter was before she ate of the apple, before they ate of the apple, they already were like God. Yet she didn't see it. They didn't see it. The fruit, it appealed to her appetite. She saw it. It appealed to her approval, her sense of approval. It was a delight to her eyes. It appealed to her ambition. It was to be desired to make one wise. And so she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, verse 6, who was with her, and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It all happened so fast. And that's how deception works. It's maybe this long process, and there's a discussion, and there's things that happen, but then all of a sudden, you're right in the place you never wanted to be. All of a sudden, you realize that what looks so good is empty. Are you there now? Are you on that road and momentum is picking up? Turn around. Confess it. Confess the deception and walk towards Christ. He is the truth. That's where freedom lies. Now, here's the kicker. We've been talking a lot about Eve. Is this all her fault? A man in the first service said yes. I said he must be single. <laughs> or his wife is at the women's retreat. One, one of the two. <laughs> is she the only one who's culpable here? Blame it on the woman, right? <laughs> but you have to pay close attention to the text. Where has Adam been this whole time? And that's when a woman in the first service said, Right there! Right there! You guys might not be scholars of the word of God, but people know this verse. I mean, they know every part of it. They've diagrammed it. They know the grammatical movement of what's happening. They know it well, and that's true. Adam was the one given the command from God directly. Adam was the one who was given the responsibility to share this command with his wife. Adam was the one who was given a responsibility to lead in his marriage, to lead in his family as he, as he was helped along by his co-equal. But did you hear it? It's back in verse 6. It says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And how do we know that he was with her the whole time instead of after the serpent left? Maybe the serpent just talked to her for a while. She takes the apple and then he comes onto the scene like, hey, what you eating? That kind of thing. Like maybe that's what went down, but that's not the case because again, we got to pay attention to the language. It's all there. It's all in the word of God. So you can't manipulate the text. Every time Satan speaks to Eve during this whole temptation scene, he uses the plural you. As though, as though he's saying, you all, you both. That means that Adam was present. That means that Adam sat there, listened to the whole conversation, listened to all of Satan's deception, and he did nothing. He sat passively by, just watching. The Apostle Paul even tells us that Adam was not deceived in 1 Timothy chapter 2. So what's that mean? A lot of men take that verse way out of context. What that means is that Adam knew she was hearing lies. Adam knew she was hearing deception. Adam knew it and he did nothing. And he failed God. And he failed himself. And he failed his wife. Satan's words were partially true. Adam and Eve didn't die that very day. Adam lived to be 930 years old, so they had centuries to try to figure this one out. But they did die spiritually, right there, right then. Relationship with Yahweh Elohim, broken. 
And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And ever since that day, we've been making ourselves loincloths, and we've known that we're naked, and we do the exact same thing. You have, I have, innocence lost, paradise lost. All of us have fallen, all but one. And that's how I want to close today. Because Jesus Christ is the very word of God in flesh. And the authors of the New Testament call him the second Adam. Did you know that? They call him the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, he overcame. Where there was deception with the first Adam, and where there was passivity with the first Adam, and where he did nothing, Jesus did what was necessary. He was tempted by Satan in a very similar way. Satan was twisting God's words, God's judgment, God's character. But Jesus overcame every single temptation ever lobbied at him. And do you know how he overcame them? With what? With the word of God. Hear this, friends, as we close. The eternal word of God resisted temptation by turning to the written word of God. The very same spirit in Jesus, the very same words that he had access to, the very same spirit, the very same word, if you are in him, you have them too. And you can overcome every form of deception in the same way he did with the word of God. There is a famine in our land for the word of God. And this is the way through deception. If Jesus is your savior, the same spirit that was in him, the same truth that was in him, it's been given to you. And so when deception is not straightforward, we must run straight to God's truth, straight to Jesus Christ. God's word is good. God's word is true. God's word incarnate, Jesus Christ, has bought you and he's brought you to freedom. To freedom. Not bondage, not oppression, but freedom. And so I just want to ask you as we close this morning, as you hear all of these things and realize that if you're in Christ, you have the exact same truth in you, you have the same access to the Spirit in you, if you understand what I'm saying this morning, who's ready to step into freedom today and away from deception? Uh, like three of you clapped. I did all that build up. <laughs> can, seriously, can we give God some praise that he has given us a way? He's given us a way to freedom. You don't need to live under deception anymore. Thinking that he has not given you enough, thinking that he hasn't given you the right person, the right job, the right stuff, thinking that it's a scarcity mentality, he has given you abundance. Don't be deceived. The truth is in you. Freedom has been given to you. Receive it and live from that place, from that identity, from that reality. It's been fixed. It's been corrected. It's been promised. It's been produced. Father, thank you for this day, for your word. Thank you that we are free in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this example that we have all fallen into, that we at times twist your word, twist your judgment, twist your character, and all of it means we have been deceived. We've picked up candy bars thinking there was something inside and they're just empty. 
And so, Father, first I pray for those who are here and maybe they realize this morning they've been living in this deception and they've never really realized that Jesus Christ is their path to freedom. He is their path to love. He is their path to joy. He is their path to peace and patience and kindness and fulfillment and satisfaction so that every instruction you give us, Father, it leads us to that place of freedom. Father, forgive us for the times we've been deceived, and I pray that if there are any here, that they would at this moment submit their lives to Jesus Christ, saying, I give it to you. Forgive me for my deception. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for dying for me and bringing me truth and freedom from my sin. Father, for all of us, help us to live in the power of these words, that we would trust what you say, that we would trust your word, that when temptation comes and deception comes, we would turn towards your word, turn towards your truth, run to Jesus Christ, and find life. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I know we're a little bit over, but I'd ask if, if you have it in your heart this morning, when, so often when we hear the word of God, what we want to do is respond. That we collectively as a family want to respond and proclaim truth. And so that's what we want to give you the opportunity to do today as just we sing, as we sing a song that's one of our favorites around here. It goes right along with this message. And it could be a song that's a prayer for you this morning. And it says, give me faith. Give me faith to trust what you say. Because I know that I'm weak but when I'm weak, God's spirit is strong in me. And I know I'm weak and fallen in my sin because sin is great, but I know that Jesus is greater than my sin. That's the truth that we're gonna proclaim to the Lord, so we just stand and let's just sing this out as a prayer to the Father and to the Son through the Spirit, thanking him that he has done work in us, that he is doing work in us. Pray that he'd soften your heart and lead you into truth.